in John chapter 12, as Jesus looks forward and contemplates His approaching death on the cross, He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, when they hang me on the cross and they stand it up and my physical body goes up in the air, that's what he's saying, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This means that Christ saw His crucifixion as an act of cosmic judgment. He would crush the head of the devil. He would foil every attempt of the devil to bring an accusation against even one of God's elect. He would bind him in such a way that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Rather, all people that is, all nations or people from every nation will now begin to be gathered unto me. Remember, this whole speech was started by the fact that Greeks had come to inquire of Jesus. And he he put it together for us. Now is the time. Now comes the judgment. The cross was the judgment and triumph over Satan. Colossians 2.15 He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is, uh, demonic powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, Christ, in His crucifixion. Beyond that, going past the crucifixion, when the Apostle Paul speaks of the ascension of Christ into the heavens... He says, Ephesians 4, 8, Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now if you go back to Psalm 68, from which that statement is taken, you'll see that it's a description of the celebration of a victorious king coming back from war and delivering the spoils of war to His people. He's triumphed. He's ascending. He's giving gifts. In other words... Following His resurrection, Christ ascends into the heavens. He literally passes through the heavens, the same language as the children of Israel, passing through the Red Sea. He passes through the heavens as an exhibition of His conquest over all demonic rulers in heavenly places. In other words, the devil is called the prince of the power of the air. He has has demonic Uh, imps everywhere that that we can't see In in the air, the powers of the air. They had to sit and watch Jesus pass through their realm and they could not do anything to stop Him. That, That was them conceding the point. We've lost. There He goes. Can you stop Him? No, I can't stop Him. Can you? No, I can't stop Him. He's triumphing and they had to watch it. They were, they were made foolish in His presence. In other words, the resurrection and ascension of Christ are also acts of cosmic judgment. God displaying the fact that He has judged these things. And where does Christ go? Well, He ascended on high. 
Hebrews 1.3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That is, that is God speaking, the Father speaking to His Son after the ascension. And He's saying, Rule. There you have it. Reign. Exercise your dominion. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. In other words, Christ has ascended to the supreme place of power and authority and dominion and rule over all things. That's where He went. He ascends as the one who bound the strong man. He ascends as the one who is plundering the nation, saving the souls of men. He ascends as the king, ruling in the midst of His enemies. He sits now, right this very moment, enthroned in heaven, wielding His mighty scepter, and His feet, as it were, are propped up on the backs of His enemies. And all of that, we saw last week, as a man. As a man. He did all of that as one of us in our nature. And it's in this sense, when you add in that factor of the incarnation, it's in, in that sense that we can say that we have now entered into a new epoch of history after the cross. It is the epoch in which the man Christ Jesus, the lion from Judah's loins, a man, the, the son of David, a man, now sits sovereign and serene in the heavens, conducting all of the affairs of human history. A new epic. God has always ruled and reigned. But now He rules especially through the mediation of the incarnate Lord Jesus, who's been crucified and buried and raised and ascended into the heavens. But some things never change, even in all of that. Namely, the purpose of God in magnifying His own wisdom. That hasn't changed. The power of God in executing His will and glorifying Himself. That hasn't changed. And that is, as it deals specifically with the work of Christ, we've been calling this the power of the cross. This, this principle by which God conducts His his purposes, it hasn't changed. God is not now operating on a, on a brand new uh, scheme or plan. Now what, what have we seen of this power so far? Well, we noted from verse 17 of this chapter that there is a power of the cross. And the power of the cross is not a, a superstitious magic in the wood, in the grains of the cross. The power of the cross is not simply the virtue that's found in a man dying for a, a virtuous reason. Now the power of the cross is what God Himself was doing through the crucifixion of His Son. That's the power of the cross. We said two weeks ago, most broadly, the power of the cross is seen in God saving sinners in a way that magnifies His wisdom and condemns the wisdom of men at the same time. Last week we focused on the cross itself. We asked, what did God accomplish as, 
Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross. What was God doing? And it was the same thing. The infinite wisdom of God was put on display. Man's wisdom was confounded and sinners were saved all in one act in the cross. And I said that as the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross, the infinite wisdom of God was in its chiefest and most glorious display in the cross. The crucifixion of Christ is the premier and climactic testimony to the wisdom of God over against man's wisdom. But it's not the only such testimony. We've already seen that prior to the cross, God did this. He worked in this same way. It's not the only such testimony, nor was it the last display of God's wisdom working through this power. As I said, some things never change. So this morning we come back full circle to Paul's main idea in 1 Corinthians. And we see that this approach of God as He placards His glorious wisdom before the eyes of men, that's not changed. God still works according to the same principle. He continues, or God's working continues on the same rails using the same ancient methods that He has always used, except now, with the triumph of Christ, these old methods now bear the marks of a new epoch in redemptive history. Let me read verses 17 and 18 again. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. I would remind you of Paul's topic here. Paul's theme is preaching. That's that's his point. We're, we're, We're finally back to that. Preaching. Verse 17, he says, to preach the gospel. That is the primary function of the apostle and preacher, to preach the gospel. In verse 18, he mentions the word of the cross. That is the message concerning Christ's crucifixion, Christ's triumph. In verse 21, he references the folly of what we preach or the folly of preaching. Speaking either of the the act of preaching or the message that's preached itself or both. The The theme remains the same. In verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. His primary function, His primary calling is preaching. Also keep in mind that Paul's going to bring this whole discussion back to its conclusion in chapter 4 by explaining the way that we ought to think about human preachers. That's the conclusion of this particular section. Remember, they were in the church dividing over preachers. So, he's correcting them by explaining the role of preachers. That's his theme. In fact, the language that's used here says one author, quote, Paul restricts in his letters to the activity of duly authorized proclaimers. Paul is talking about preaching and preachers. Why? Because their division was over preaching and preachers. 
Now, when you, when you take the, the scope of a text like this and you narrow it down, some might hear that thinking and, and think that this section of Scripture and limiting it that way somehow elevates the man who preaches above those who hear. But we have to keep in mind that Paul's point is actually the exact opposite. Paul's not elevating the preachers over the hearers. Paul is saying that the role of human preachers ought to be totally eclipsed by the power of the cross. In other words, Paul writes to elevate preaching, but not preachers. There is a great power in the cross. There is great power in preaching the cross. There is no power in any human preacher. I bring you no power. No preacher has any power until the preacher understands that point. He can't be used of God. We have to understand that. That's what he's saying. So we've come to the period of time that I've called after the cross. And it extends all the way through Paul's dealings here with the Corinthians, all the way up to the present day, all the way up to this very moment. And it deals specifically with preaching. And what I want you to see is that after the cross, God's work in redemptive history, His manner of dealing with sinners, the way that He is going to deal with mankind, follows the same principle that we've already seen. God magnifies His wisdom... He condemns the wisdom of men and He saves sinners all through an act that defies human reasoning. That's what preaching is. That's how we should think of preaching. As we listen to preaching, we ought to expect that God is going to magnify His wisdom. God is going to confound the wisdom of men. We ought to expect that God is going to save and sanctify sinners through an act and in ways that we can't explain. We ought to expect that because that's what it is. He does all this through the activity of preaching. So in order to prove this, I want to just give you basically a survey of God's wisdom through preaching. Or a survey of the history of preaching, starting with that period of time that we've already seen, the the period of time approaching the cross, just so that you see God's methods haven't changed. So the first heading in this survey is the example of the prophets. So if you're taking notes, the first point is the example of the prophets. And there will be five points. The example of the prophets. From ancient times, the God of revelation or the God who reveals Himself to men has used preachers to convey His truth. Our Lord says something very interesting and very noteworthy in Luke chapter 11 when he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. In Luke 11, 49 and 50, he says, The wisdom of God said, and then he gives a quotation, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation." In other words, we see the man Jesus, our Lord, God incarnate, saying, 
infinite wisdom, the wisdom of God, devised this plan, a plan to send preachers. And the irony is that our Lord even says that it was understood that these preachers would be hated and persecuted and killed. And why is that? Well, He says, so that, here's the purpose, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. In other words, the sending of preachers was an act of judgment. I will send them. They will kill them. The world is judged. The sending of preachers as an act of judgment. Now, what are the examples that he gives? Well, he, he begins here with Abel. The blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel. That is beginning with Abel, the Adam, or the, the son of Adam. Abel was a prophet. He was a preacher, and his brother killed him. In Jude, verses 14 to 15a, we, we read these words, Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied, he, he preached, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all, etc., etc. Now we know the way that history unfolded. Very few people heeded the preaching of Enoch. By the time of the flood, there were only eight people that were even saved. Noah himself is described by Peter in 2 Peter 2.5 in this way, God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, or a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. So, so this implies if there were any people on the earth who heeded the preaching of Noah, it, they were found in, that, in those seven people. One might could argue that maybe some of those seven didn't even really pay attention to his preaching. But at best, of the whole world, seven people heeded his preaching and at least got into the boat. And judgment came. Now the flood was not the evidence of their rebellion. The evidence of their rebellion was their unwillingness to hear the preacher. They wouldn't listen to Noah. The flood came as the punishment to be inflicted because they had openly rebelled against the preacher. They wouldn't listen. Moses was a prophet or a preacher. Deuteronomy 34.10, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. And how do they treat Moses? We know they murmured constantly off and on with, with Moses. They complained that, that he had this exclusive right to preaching. Ought there not to be many more? And, and Moses even desired, would that all God's people prophesied. But they complained. They didn't like the fact that this one man was going to preach and everybody's got to listen. Everybody's going to follow this one. In 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah is called the troubler of Israel. Not the, not the preacher of Israel. Not Israel's pastor. No, the troubler. You preach. You trouble everyone. When Isaiah asked concerning his ministry, How long, O Lord? He said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. In other words, preach until everything's destroyed. To Jeremiah, God said, They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. To Ezekiel, God said, 
You are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, and a lot of preachers would say, I'll take it. But God goes on, but they will not do it. And a preacher ought to say, if they're going to hear and not do, I would really rather not have the job. I don't want to be known as a a wonderful instrument that people love to listen to if they're not going to heed the words. But that's how they received Ezekiel. Oh, they love to hear him. And they said, well, we're not going to do what he says. We just like to listen to him. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen summarizes the point that I'm trying to make as he's preaching just before he dies for his preaching. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. How did they resist the Holy Spirit? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. They resisted the Holy Spirit in that when God sent prophets, when God sent preachers, they wouldn't listen. They hated them. They persecuted them. They killed them. So God's method from the beginning was the preacher. And God's method from the beginning was rejected, spurned, and hated by the multitude. And yet we know some were saved. Some were saved. Few, but some. And we see that from the example of the prophets. Heading number two. The exemplar, Jesus Christ. The the supreme model of preaching is the Lord Jesus. Christ Jesus is the Word of God incarnate, sent by the Father to bear witness to the truth, to bear witness to God, and was Himself a preacher. Christ even connected Himself with those that we just learned about, the prophets, in Matthew 21, in the... In the parable, he says, The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. They did the same to them. He's talking about the prophets, the preachers. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, They will respect my son. In other words, Christ says, I've come as the climax and in the same line as those who've gone before me. Coming to do the, the very same thing. The prophet of prophets the one to whom all the prophets pointed, the one of whom all those former prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's how Peter described the work of the prophets. So Christ, we could say the incarnate sermon, comes into the world from God and they killed Him. He came as a preacher and they killed Him. The eternal Word was sent to bear witness to the truth. John 18, 37, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And our Lord was Himself a preacher. Those who described Him after His crucifixion on the road to Emmaus described Him this way, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. 
After he preached, Matthew 7, the crowds were astonished at his preaching, his teaching. John 7, even those who hated him, wanted to kill him, said, no one ever spoke like this man. I was reading Gardner Spring this morning and he, he describes Christ in this way and he says, and this was in his humiliation. These were just the outskirts of his ways. And people said, nobody ever spoke like this. He said, nobody before him and nobody after him. And since then, thousands of men some of them inspired and most of them uninspired have preached and tried to teach the very same truths and yet nobody ever spoke like this man, Christ, the preacher. What does he say? Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, he was despised and rejected, and yet some were saved through Christ's ministry. Few, but some. That same preacher who was the judgment of God incarnate was also the salvation of God incarnate. So we have the exemplar, Jesus Christ. Number three, the expectation set by Christ. The expectation set by Christ. As Christ trained and commanded His apostles, He made clear that His expectation for them was to continue as the next generation of preachers. This is what they would do. He prepared them for His work, or their work, in, in His parables and in the fact that He actually sent them out to preach while He was on the earth. When He explained His parables in Matthew 13... He used the same language that Isaiah spoke of his ministry. You will indeed uh, preach and they, they will not hear. You're going to harden their hearts through your ministry. He referred to the seed in the, in the parable of the sower as the word of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom. He said if they don't understand this parable about sowing the seed, they're not going to understand any of the parables. Implying that their work, the work of the apostles, the work of the kingdom for them was going to be focused on sowing the seed of the gospel, the proclamation of the word. In Matthew chapter 10, he sends out the twelve and, and he prepares them for that work but also their future work after his ascension by saying, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. In Luke 10, he sends out the 70 and he says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You see what's happening. God has always had preachers. God's Son is a preacher. God prepares His disciples to be preachers. But with all of the preaching, which is God's ordained means, all, since the beginning, it's always been uh, attended with persecution, and rejection. Some are saved, but it's also a judgment on many. The plan never changes. 
Now when we officially move to the, the period of time after the cross, we see Christ giving commands to the same effect. Think about it. Think about what we, we talked about last week. Christ is suffering. He suffers and He dies. That, that is he, His triumph in His death. But then three days later, He's raised from the dead. He defeats death. Then He appears to His disciples after His death. Now, they're probably thinking, what's going to happen now? We know that that's what they were thinking. What's going to happen now? Surely now that Christ has suffered and died and been raised from the dead, surely now that the victory has been won, salvation has been accomplished, surely now that we've entered into this new epoch of redemptive history, the method of advancement is going to change. Surely now that the war is won, technically, well, the battles, the skirmishes are going to be fought a little differently. Surely. Surely now the disciples thought you'll deliver the kingdom to Israel, restore the kingdom to Israel. But again, some things never change. The Lord said in Luke 24, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, His death and resurrection. In other words, He's saying, all right, here's the plan. All nations must hear through proclamation, through preaching. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we know well. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, again, disciples are to be made among the nations through teaching, through the ministry of the Word. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, a witness, one who gives their testimony to what they have seen and heard. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, according to Christ's command, are to hear the testimony of the sufferings and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what He commands after His resurrection. So Christ comes... The Word in human flesh, He comes as a preacher, He's hated, He's persecuted, He's killed, He prepares His disciples to be preachers, He sends them out. But what's the difference now? After the cross, what has changed? Well, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a part of it. Jesus Christ, the God-man, has been crucified and raised from the dead. He's ascended into the heavens as Lord and Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Our mediator and head, a man of our nature, is now the man of God's right hand. Our great God and Savior has conquered, has bound the devil. The nations are now His for the taking. And He will now gird on His sword, onto His thigh. He will ride victoriously, conquering and to conquer. But what is that sword? It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the the two-edged sword coming from His mouth, the preached gospel. This is how He will conquer. Now you say, wait a second. 
the king of kings, having all power and authority, is going to subdue the nations by sending men to preach. That's what you're saying. You say, that sounds a little counterintuitive. Exactly. Exactly. That's the point. Just to be clear, the message is that a Jewish carpenter is actually God the Son in human flesh, that He was crucified by the Romans, clearly dead, buried, but then on the third day He came out of the tomb, and then 40 days later He went up in with the clouds into heaven where He is now somewhere, not one of us could say where, but He's, he's in the heavens enthroned, ruling over everything, dictating all of the plans of infinite wisdom that were laid in eternity. He's the one unrolling the scroll right this very moment. That's, that's the message. Yeah, that's it. She says it sounds counterintuitive. Exactly. And when you, when you get that in your mind then you're in the right frame of mind to hear Paul say, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. I'm going to overthrow it. So that every, every human mind with working with only natural, carnal reasoning, every human mind from the womb says, that sounds counterintuitive. That, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's not the way I would do it. There's got to be a better way. Surely you can't be really saying what I think you're saying. The power of the cross is seen in God saving sinners in a way that magnifies His wisdom. And it condemns the wisdom of men. So that we all come together and we say, well, here's how we would do it. And God knocks the house of cards over. And He says, I'm not doing it that way. I'm doing it in a way that brings glory only to myself. The infinite wisdom of God is put on display. Man's wisdom is confounded. Sinners are saved all in one act. The preaching of the gospel. That's the expectation that Christ set before He ascended into the heavens. Heading number four. The exercise of the apostles. The exercise of the apostles. When we read the book of Acts, we see this is exactly what they did. They, they heard it just like we all just heard it, and they put it to practice. As we watch the apostles following Christ's ascension and the outpoured Spirit from His heavenly throne, we see that their normal routine was to preach. The book of Acts is, is 
the, the story of men going about preaching. That's what it is. Peter says at Pentecost in Acts 2.32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He just gave his testimony. This is what we've seen. And Luke adds to that in Acts 2.40, And with many other words, he bore witness. He preached. He bore witness to what they had seen. Peter and John say in Acts 4.20, We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's what they were commissioned to do. That was the expectation. They were commanded in Acts chapter 5, verse 20, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Sounds counterintuitive. Will you just, just go talk? Just get out of prison? Go, go over to where we were arrested before and just, just start preaching? That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. After the persecution broke out in Jerusalem, Acts 8, 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. That thing that got us persecuted in Jerusalem? We're just going to go everywhere else and keep doing the same thing? Yeah, just keep doing the same thing. Well, they really got upset in Jerusalem when we preached to them that there is another king, Jesus. They really upset set them. We're going to go do that somewhere else. Correct. Correct. Acts 8.25, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. After Paul's conversion, Acts 9.20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. You know, the, the message the Jews love to hear. Right? The carpenter from Nazareth is your Messiah. I want to go back into the synagogue. I'm going to tell them. That's the preaching. In Acts 9, verse 28, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Cornelius said in Acts 10.33, We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We're going to sit here. We're going to be quiet, Peter, and you talk. We're here to listen. And the angel prepared Cornelius by saying of Peter in Acts 11.14, He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. Would you not sit still and be quiet too? Would you not gather everybody near you and say, Be quiet and listen. The angel said, He's going to preach a message by which we will be saved. Close your mouth and listen. Is that not what you would do? That's what they did. Acts 14.7, They continued to preach the gospel. Acts 15.7, Peter said, By my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Acts 17.18, in Athens, Paul was described as preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Acts 19.13, even the believers, unbelievers rather, unbelievers referred to Christ as the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. It was just known. These are the people that preach that one. And this is that one who those people preach. Paul finally makes it to Rome. The, the Jews reject him and he says, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness 
and without hindrance. The, the book of Acts literally ends with Paul preaching the gospel after being rejected by the Jews. Why? Because some things never change. This is how it works. This is the exercise of the apostles. So then we come, fifthly, to the explanation of the Spirit. The explanation of the Spirit. When the Spirit of Christ, speaking through the inspired Scriptures of the New Testament, articulates the doctrine and theology uh, behind preaching, here's what we learn. This is still God's chosen method for saving and saving sinners. Paul was willing to endure suffering and even imprisonment as long as the gospel could be preached. He says in Philippians 1-2, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's all he cared about. He just want the gospel to go forward. And it's okay for me to be in prison if that means the gospel goes forward. Why? Because that was his supreme goal, that the gospel would go forward. How do we know that? Because he was sent by Christ not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That was the, the significance that was displayed throughout the New Testament. Now, why is preaching so important? Why was it so important to Paul? Well, we could say because Christ commanded it, but when we continue to read, we find out preaching is necessary for certain things, like conversion. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. It's necessary for salvation. How will they hear without a preacher? The implication is they won't. And if they don't hear, they don't call. And if they don't call, they won't be saved without the preacher. Discipleship and sanctification depends upon preaching. John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Both definitively and progressively, sanctification happens when the Word of God is declared to people, to men. Preaching is the chosen method for the salvation and sanctification of the elect of God. It is the water by which the bride of Christ is washed and prepared and made ready for His return. But coming back to our text, we see that Paul makes a reference not simply to just preaching in general, not just any old thing that anybody wants to call preaching, but he addresses the substance and the style of preaching. As to substance, preach the gospel, the word of the cross, Christ crucified. That's the substance. The central theme of all preaching must be the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. That's the substance. But then with regard to style, he says, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Not that way. A different way. In 2 Corinthians, he addresses the same thing. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's words. He says that he preached by the open statement of the truth. Just clear, simple, open preaching. Not, word, not eloquent words of man's wisdom, but declaring the Word of God. Well, why? Because, as we saw, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
What is that power? It is God magnifying His wisdom by saving sinners and confounding the wisdom of men in the same act which to the world is foolishness. It is to them a savor of death. It enrages the unbeliever and the unbelieving world. But to us who are being saved, it is the sweet, converting, sanctifying, comforting, strengthening power of God. And some things never change. This side of eternity, there will be no end to preaching. This side of eternity, there will be no end to the need for preachers. There will be no capping off of our souls in our need for hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This side of eternity, we will never say, I don't don't need to hear it again. I've heard it enough. That will carry me through. We'll never say that. Every time we hear the gospel, we say, I'm glad I heard it again. Someday, we will bid farewell to preaching and preachers. Today is not that day. This is God's chosen method. It confounds the wisdom of the world. But through it, He saves sinners. So then let me give you some applications from these truths. These are things that immediately welled up in me as I thought about these things as a preacher. Number one, since all this is true, number one, hold the practice of preaching in high regard. Hold the practice of preaching in high regard. The time when the Word of God is being preached is a sacred time. Not because of the man who speaks, but because of the God who lends, has promised to lend His special power to the act of preaching in ways that He has not promised to lend His power in other things. Hold the practice of preaching in high regard. We ought to reverence the preaching of the Word of God. We ought to be the kind of people who prepare ourselves to hear the preaching of the Word of God. Teach and prepare your family to hear preaching, especially children. Our job is not to teach children to sit still and be quiet. Our job is to teach children to sit still and be quiet so they can hear the preaching, to reverence the preaching. Why? What if if an angel came to you last night and said, listen, there's going to be a message preached tomorrow by which you and your whole household is going to be saved. How do you think you would prepare your children for that message? How do you think you would conduct yourself in worship if that was the case? This is going to be the time. This is going to be the one. But you must hear. And you must be careful how you hear. We never know when the Spirit of God might move. So we must hold it in high regard. Number two, pray often for preachers. Pray 
often for preachers. And I'm not embarrassed to ask for that. The Apostle Paul asked for it repeatedly. Pray for preachers. There is no way that I could describe to anyone who's not a preacher the utter humiliation that attends preaching. Now that's not to say that there's not a, 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 a temptation and a tendency toward pride. I can't say that I've ever preached a sermon in which there was not at least some remnant of pride in my heart. But that's humiliating. It's humiliating to think about. So we ought to pray for those who preach. Preaching confounds the wisdom of men, both hearer and preacher alike. I'm, I'm not st- the preacher. I'm not standing here thinking, this will get them. I got it this time. This is the one that will work. No, it, it confounds me. It doesn't make any sense to me. So you ought to pray for those who preach. You will most often get out of preaching what you put into it by way of praying for the preacher. Not always. Sometimes the Lord in His kindness will bless will bless you and edify you. And you have to look back and say, Lord, I didn't ask for that at all. I wasn't prepared. I didn't think about it. I just rolled right in the door and plopped everybody down and said, well, I'm here. And you fed my soul anyway. That's, that's mercy. That's grace toward us. He doesn't owe us that. But very often, if somebody comes to me and they have a, uh, some wonderful thing to say about a sermon, I assume that person, they just prepared to hear it. They prayed and they got ready to hear. They prayed for me. So pray for preachers. Number three, relish preaching. Relish preaching. And this is different than holding it in high regard. Delight in it. Delight in preaching. Hopefully what you've got from the things that I've showed you is you now know that preaching is designed by God to both condemn and confound human wisdom, that it is folly to carnal thinking. It doesn't doesn't fit into the mold of the things that people praise because of it it tingling our senses or or doing anything that other things can do. It's completely different. So, So you know now, hopefully you understand now, You do not have to judge preaching by its external flair and excitement and its its, uh, being appetizing to your senses or any satisfaction that it brings to your flesh. You don't have to think in those terms anymore. You're released from that. You're free. You're now at liberty to just relish preaching as a thing given by God, a contrivance of the wisdom of God. It's from His mind, not my mind. And we can receive it that way. God, you've ordained this. I'm just expecting God to do something amazing. Not expecting something amazing from the preacher. It's a gift of God's mercy. I hope that you learn to relish preaching because it is the power of God and not the eloquent words of man's wisdom that often attain it. There are levels and aspirations, and growth in every preacher, hopefully, so that he gets to a point where he is able to speak with some liberty of utterance that you might say, wow, I could never speak that way. That's not what we're here to hear. That that just comes with the territory. That's just a part of doing the job. That's not what saves sinners. 
Don't relish that. Boy, that sounded really good. Don't relish that. Don't relish that. There are lots of really good sounding, terrible sermons. Don't relish that. Just relish preaching as a gift from God. Number four, ask God for preachers. Ask God for preachers. Jesus commanded us to pray for laborers to go into His harvest. And I interpret that to mean men who will go out preaching the gospel in the world. Ask for that. Pray, God, raise up preachers. Preachers. Ask God for preachers. And then lastly, number five. Teach your sons that they can be preachers with the necessary cautions that should attend such an encouragement. Teach your sons that they can be preachers. It is something worthy of their aspirations. You can't find another job in the Bible, job, calling, whatever, whatever word you want to use, you can't find another one where the Spirit says He desires a noble task. It's a noble task. Now, it's not honorable to the world. Don't, don't tell your sons, oh, you can be a preacher, the world will love it. Don't tell them that. These are the necessary cautions. It's not honorable to the world. It's not going to afford them the lifestyle of their peers, many people in the world. It's not going to get you that, more than likely. It's not even going to afford them the lifestyle of many of their brothers and sisters in the church. They're not going to get that. No, none of us is ever going to go to the department store, go to the boys' clothing section, and see a mannequin dressed up advertising a style of clothing behind a pulpit with a Bible. Nobody's saying, did you see how the preachers, all the preachers are dressing this way. All the preachers are wearing this. Nobody's looking to the, the preachers to be trendsetters in the culture. You're not going to get that. And yet, it is a noble task. I don't think in this church, I don't think we believe it's a noble task. When our daughters say that they want to be bakers someday, we tell them they will be bakers, serving their husband and their children all of the days of their lives. That's a noble task. When they say they want to be singers, we say you will be a singer. Singing God's praises in your home, singing in the assembly of the saints, you'll be a singer. When they want to be teachers, we say you will be a teacher. You will teach your children. You will nurture them and train them up in the admonition of the Lord. You will be a teacher. When they want to be doctors, we say, well, you'll have plenty of splinters and scratched knees and things to, to bandage up in your home. When they want to be veterinarians, we say, well, there's some animals right outside. Go start doctoring them. And maybe someday you can have some of your own and you'll just flourish right there doing that job. 
You can do that. You can have all of these things. But then when our sons say that they want to be preachers, we smile and say, that's cute, and we hand them a hammer and say, maybe you'll be a profitable member of society. Why not say, you want to be a preacher when you grow up? Oh my, that's, that's wonderful. What a wonderful blessing that would be. Well, you better start learning now. You better read your Bible cover to cover now. You better master it and let it master you. What if, what if, what if someday some of you boys could preach in this church? Or what if you were sent to the other side of the world to preach to people who had never heard the gospel? So that when you said Jesus Christ, they would say, Tell us, tell us, tell us about Him. We, we need to know we haven't heard. That's a noble task. Very often when we pray or think about praying for laborers to go into the harvest, we really have in mind those from other churches or people in other nations who will go forward and preach. But we don't have in mind our own sons becoming duly authorized proclaimers. We think, well, I'm really praying that my son grows up and he becomes a a profitable, successful member of society and and maybe in his job and in his calling he'll, he'll have a place here or there to verbalize the gospel. I'm not diminishing that in the least. I hope that that's happening everywhere. It ought to be happening. But what I'm saying is we don't think I hope my son actually becomes a, you know, an actual preacher. Because we really don't believe oftentimes that it is a noble task. Preaching is certainly foolishness to the world. A lot of times we think like the world. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I believe that we as Christians should live and speak and train in such a way that shows we believe that's true. We actually do believe it's a noble task. What is it that we commemorate in the Lord's Supper? Well, we commemorate the the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, His body broken and His blood poured out. But as we tried to answer last Lord's Day, what was happening there? What, What is saving about that? Two other men were crucified with Him. Are they saviors? Have they done anything for our souls? No. The answer is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, For our sake He, that is God, made Him, that is His Son, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is God the Son incarnate in human flesh. He knew no sin, had no experience of sin, never sinned, never, never thought a sinful thought, never said a sinful word, never went to a sinful place, was never even inclined to sin whatsoever, absolutely pure and blameless and holy. Um, we cannot describe or fathom the holiness of Jesus Christ and what it, what it is like for the holy God to walk a sin-cursed earth in human flesh. We cannot understand it. Absolute purity. 
in the midst of sinful men. And yet as He hung on the cross, the text says He made Him to be sin. The Father imputed our sins, we who are the sinners, to His Son. Credited to Him as if He had committed the sins. Even though He hadn't, He knew no sin, it says. He had not sinned. But the Father credited the sins of His people to the Son. And then He treated Him as if He were a sinner. He treated Him in the way that we all ought to be treated because of our sin. The language of Isaiah is He crushed Him. He put Him to grief. He was punished for sins that He didn't commit. And it says that we might become the righteousness of God. Through the exercise of faith, entrusting your soul to Christ, we, we with our souls grab a hold of this Jesus. And the Father then credits to us that holy, perfect, blameless, perfectly pure life as if we had lived it. We didn't live it, but He credits it to us and now He treats us as if we had lived it because He treated Jesus as if He had sinned our sins. He put Him to death on the cross. He bore in His human body and soul the weight of the, the agony, vengeance of God in our place so that we could be saved. And He commands people, now now that that's happened, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. The work is completed. He's already done it. But you must believe. You must believe. So as we come to the Lord's table, that's what we're remembering. In Mark's Gospel... We read these words. As they were eating, He took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is My body. The bread represents Christ's body. That body that knew no sin was broken for us. And now that Christ becomes life to our souls. In the same way that we eat bread and we live upon it, by faith we take hold of Christ and we live upon Him. He is our life. That's the picture. Eternally, He is our life. So as the elements are passed, meditate on the gospel. It's good news. Maybe even think through the gospel and then ask yourself, why are you cast down within me, O my soul? Hope in God. And then we'll come to the table together.